right, well, good to see y'all this morning. Weather in the cold, and uh, you weathered some of the sickness I, I've heard, too, so this week. Well, some of y'all have gone through it. Um, so, but good to see y'all. Let me go ahead and open this up in a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this wonderful day, a day where we can gather and study your word. A uh, day where we can focus on your word and these specific questions. We, we pray that you would be with us and that your spirit would teach us much. Uh, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, very good. Um, hey, Caleb, can you hand me one of those uh, the books of the Bible handouts? All right, so we're going to get started this morning as we continue through our study of the Westminster Larger Catechism. And um, we've seen the and talked about the benefits of this kind of study as uh, really in comparison between the shorter and the larger. The larger can be said to be the meat where uh, the shorter is the milk. Um, and so we've already gleaned uh, quite a bit in these couple of weeks that we've been examining it. Um, what I'd like to do here at the beginning in just kind of good catechetical fashion is to, and to help with memorization, is let's go back to question number one and let's recite the question and answer for number one first as well as number two. Um, and um, then we will proceed with three and four is what we're looking at today. Um, so, and I realize that some of you may have one and two in front of you or available on your phones or whatnot, or, or you may have your, your standards with you. If not, that's okay. I'll be, I'll say the question and the answer together. Um, but let's, let's recite these together. Question one, what is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully enjoy him forever. Very good. Let's say that again. What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. Excellent. And question number two. How doth it appear that there is a God? The very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God. But his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. Again, let's do that one more time. How doth it appear that there is a God? The very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God. But his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually Reveal him unto men for their salvation. All right, very good. And so really that second clause in the answer to question number two leads us to question three, right? And really where we're going to spend some time this week and next in regards to the word of God, in regards to scripture, right? So the answer, uh, the second clause there and the answer of question two again is, but his word and spirit do only sufficiently and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. So we talked last week, remember the two categories, generally speaking, of revelation that God gives us. 
and that being general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is what? Does anybody remember? What is general revelation? Right. Creation, nature, yep. And what is special revelation? Right. Special revelation is divine revelation from God, his spoken word, which we have here in writing in scripture. And so then question three, as it as it spoke to, in question two, as it spoke to uh, the word of God really being the only source that sufficiently and effectually reveals God unto men for our salvation, right? Question three then says, okay, well, so what is that word of God, right? We, we need to define our terms. We need to understand what we're talking about and what we're not talking about. But I also want us briefly, before we dive into that, to consider this, that whereas question one teaches us the reason for the existence of human beings, I want you to see the connections here and the flow and our grand purpose and what that is. Question two then uh, talks about the proof of the existence of God and introduces God's revelation in his word. And so now question three goes even further to teach us what, co- what uh, comprises God's word and what its purpose is. Okay. So let's look at question three together. Okay. Let's look at question three and let's say it together. What is the Word of God? The Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the Word of God, the only rule of faith and obedience. All right, let's say that again. What is the Word of God? The Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the Word of God, the only rule of faith and obedience. Excellent. So notice that the Westminster Divines make an exclusive statement here in the answer to question three, right? The books of the Old Testament and the New Testament are the only books that the church is to consider inspired divine revelation. Okay, that's it. All others are just literature. Okay, all others are just literature. So it doesn't matter what new old manuscripts, right? Okay, and what I mean by new is that maybe newly discovered, right? Things that have been uncovered and brought to public light. Um, It doesn't matter what new old manuscripts, scrolls, or papyrus are discovered later, even in the modern day. They aren't the Word of God. They aren't the inspired Word of God. And how do we know that this is true? Along with the internal evidence that we're going to discuss and we're going to look at in question four, the Holy Spirit worked in the minds and hearts of his people in the early church to determine what writings, which books, should be in the canon of Scripture. Okay, in the canon of Scripture. So you see in your handout that the focus really here on question three is canonicity and inspiration of Scripture. When we talk about canonicity, we're talking about what what is in that canon, what is in that group of books um, that we should understand and do understand is divine revelation, divine Scripture, and what is not. Okay. So we know that the canon of Scripture is closed. Right. We see 
the confession, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith speaks to that in chapter 1, section 1, right? And how God has revealed himself to us and his word to us. Um, and in what ways he reveals himself to us. Uh, the previous ways, say through the prophets and otherwise, uh, now being ceased, right? Uh, there are other places in the confession, and we're going to talk more about that a little bit here this morning. So there was much less debate. Let's talk about in the canonicity. How was canon determined? Okay, how, how did the church come to understand that the 66 books of the Bible that we have, that this is the word of God? Okay, How did they come to, to find that out and to determine that? Well, there was a lot of discussion, right? There was debate in the different councils of the church in history. But there was much less debate, uh, I want you to know, about what belongs in the Old Testament scriptures than about those that belong in the New Testament. Okay? However, by 250 AD, there was nearly universal agreement on the canon of the Old Testament. Okay, So by 250 AD... Nearly everybody was in agreement on the canon and what was inspired scripture in the Old Testament. The main debate at that point was regarding the Apocrypha. Okay, So that was the main debate. We're actually going to talk more about the Apocrypha because I know that you know in, in a lecture series, a Sunday school series in the past, Caleb went through some of these things too, talked about Sola Scriptura, talked about some of these matters, but I want, I want you to be aware and I want you to be knowledgeable of, uh, even as the confession speaks to it in one of its sections in chapter one, um, but it's really a part of this question here too, and what is scripture and what is not? What is the Apocrypha and what was going on about it? We're going to go into a little bit more detail today than maybe we have in times past and series past. Okay, I would like for you to take your handouts. And if you need a handout, uh, just raise your hand and my son Caleb can get you what you need. Okay. All right. So in the Westminster Confession of Faith, look at the handout that shows the books of the Bible. Okay. In the Westminster Confession, in chapter 1 of Scripture, we see in section 2, under the name of Holy Scripture or the Word of God written are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament, which are these. Right? And as we're studying the confession, you know, it's a good point for teachers to point out. It's a good question to ask. Why do they take the time and put the ink in listing out the books of the Bible in the confession? Again, we need to, we need to have the boundaries. We need to have the pathway to say, these books are inspired scripture. Right? If we're talking about scripture, what are we talking about? Right? Which books? How do we know? Right, and what are what are they specifically? So, uh, quick question: I'll, I'll, I will uh, maybe embarrass myself afterwards by singing a little bit, teaching you all a song if you don't know. But how many of you parents have heard different songs to help your kids learn the books of the Bible? Yeah, how many of you use them? Yeah, okay, all right, beauty. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, well, we'll walk through one here today. It may be of benefit to you. All right, so in the, in the books of the Old Testament, let's read these together. And we're going to go down column one, then over to column two, and then over to column three. All right, the books of the Old Testament are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 
First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Very good. Now, if you don't know a song, and even for you adults, if you would like, you know, when we're preaching through Scripture and we're teaching through Scripture and we're like, turn to the book of Obadiah, right? Some of you chuckled when I was going through some of the Old Testament prophets, minor prophets, prophets like Jonah or uh, Nahum, right? I'd say, oh, it's before, it's right after this one and right before that one. You're like, thanks, it really helps, right? Unless I, I need to turn to my table of contents in the beginning of, of my Bible, right? Which is also good and helpful, but... But there are songs to help uh, kids, but it is, as, as much as they are helpful for kids, it's also helpful for us as adults, right? So um, here, here is one of those songs that um, Stacy and I taught the kids when they were young and one that you might be familiar with. So as you look at the, the list and the order of the, of the books there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and the last one, Malachi. I bet you're going to memorize that. Yeah. So that's a good song. Now, the New Testament one, I haven't actually heard a whole lot of songs with the New Testament books. Maybe you all have. You can point me to it. But um, Let's read through the, the books of the New Testament here briefly as well. The Gospels, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Acts of the Apostles, Paul's epistles to the Romans, Corinthians 1, Corinthians 2, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians 1, Thessalonians 2, to Timothy 1, to Timothy 2, to Titus, to Philemon, the epistle to the Hebrews, the epistle of James, the first and second epistles of Peter, the first, second, and third epistles of John, the epistle of Jude, and the revelation of John. Very good. So these are the books of the Old and New Testament. These are the books of inspired Scripture, the Word of God. Now, in regards to what some would claim, especially in history past and time past, regarding uh, the Apocrypha, um, what is the Apocrypha? And what are the books of the Apocrypha? Now, I did not write those out for you. You can make some notes if you'd like to. I'll try to say them slow enough. If you want to write them down, you can find them online or otherwise. But these are the books of the Apocrypha. First and second Esdras. 
the book of Tobit, the book of Judith, additions to the book of Esther, the book of Wisdom, the book of Sirach, the book of Baruch, the epistle of Jeremiah, additions to the book of Daniel, the prayer of Manassas, the additional psalm, and then 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabees. Okay, so those are the books called the Apocrypha. And the vast majority of the Hebrew scholars agreed that the Apocrypha, they were interesting historical documents. Okay, for example, the book in the books of Maccabees, it gives some a, a historical account of the Maccabean revolt, for example. But they're not inspired scripture. And it wasn't until the Council of Trent, and that council, you know, spanned, um, it really ended around 1563 or so. It wasn't until the Council of Trent that the Roman Catholic Church claimed that the Apocrypha was to be considered inspired. Okay, so there were many centuries of the church where the early church and even the medieval church um, they were all in agreement that Apocrypha was not inspired scripture. It was the Roman Catholic Church that later claimed it to be so. And so then the Roman Catholic Church, along with the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, still continue to make that claim today. But very early on, um, some of the New Testament books were being recognized. Okay, So again, in this discussion of what is scripture and how do we know that the books of the New Testament and the Old Testament are inspired scripture? Well, we see uh, some very clear things in the practice of the church. And again, in question four, we're going to look at more internal evidences as well. But consider this. Paul considered Luke's writings to be as authoritative as the Old Testament. Let's turn together briefly and look at 1 Timothy 5.18. And if somebody else could grab Deuteronomy 25.4. When you have it, go ahead and call it out. take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Okay, very good. And in Second Tim, or excuse me, First Timothy 5.18, we read there, and that, let me back up to 17, actually. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Okay, so here is a quote back to the Old Testament, back to Deuteronomy, um, even here as uh, Paul is considering Luke's writings to be authoritative, right? He's, he's, we see the combination there. Um, and you can see uh, Luke's statement words in Luke 10, 7, if you want to reference that. 
But Peter also recognized Paul's writings as scripture. And this is the passage we're going to be considering next week in Second Peter, Lord willing. But Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. Verses 15 and 16. We can back up to 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So here Peter is speaking to Paul's writings. He's speaking to the benefit of Paul's writings, but he is also saying and, and making the statement that Paul's writings should be considered Scripture, even as he says, the rest of the scriptures, right? He's including Paul's writings in that. Thirdly, some of the books of the New Testament were being circulated among the churches uh, to be read. If you look at Colossians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 4. And verse 16, and if somebody else could grab 1 Thessalonians 5.27. So this is uh, Paul's closing words and exhortations to the church in Colossae. And he says, now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Okay. So this church was, uh, excuse me, this epistle, this letter was to be passed and circulated to the churches, and it was. Can somebody read 1 Thessalonians 5 27? Okay, very good. Yep, it was to be passed around and to be read among the brethren. So further, so we see these, this kind of level and, and aspect of evidence and support. But we also see that the early church fathers referenced many of the books in their writings as well. So, for example, Clement of Rome mentioned at least eight New Testament books in his writings. Ignatius of Antioch spoke about and referenced seven books. Polycarp. And we know Polycarp was a disciple of John. He acknowledged 15 of the books and referenced those in his writings. And Irenaeus mentioned 21 of the books. Okay. Um, Hippolytus recognized 22 of the books. And remember that these brothers were all first century, even into the second century and when they lived. And so they were very much a part of the early church as the uh, early church fathers. 
So in regards to the book of the books of the New Testament, and again, back to this debate that I was telling you about um, and regarding canon, the New Testament books that receiving the most controversy were the book of Hebrews, James, Second Peter, Second John, and Third John. Okay. However, um, by the church councils in the fourth century, all of these matters, there was clear consensus and again, uh, vast uh, universal acknowledgement and acceptance of the books that we have in the New Testament scriptures as inspired scripture, um, even at that time. Okay. And we need to remember as well, and we're going to actually, I'll hold that off. We're going to talk more about the internal and one other aspect of external evidence in a minute. And so what did the early church councils ask and answer to determine canon? Okay. What were some of the questions as they were considering these books? What were some of these questions that they looked at? First, was the author an apostle or have a close relationship and connection with an apostle? Secondly, is the book being accepted by the body of Christ at large? Right? Was, this a, was this a book that the church had received, a text that they had received and was in use and recognized by them as scripture? And did the book contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching? And fourthly, did the book bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect the work of the Holy Spirit? Okay. So those were the words and the, the points of evaluation, so to speak, that the early church gave in, in asking and answering questions about books to determine whether they were inspired scripture. Let's also then look at, in regards to the question that the catechism question raises, what is scripture and what isn't scripture? Let's look at 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. And if somebody can grab 2 Peter 1, 19-21. And then Second uh, Peter 2, verse 3, as well as 15 through 16. Third person could grab that. I'll read 2 Timothy 3.16. Very well-known passage, right? Uh, good to memorize. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Okay. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So we see the matter of, as I mentioned before, in the focus on the question, canonicity and the inspiration of scripture. Right? What does inspiration mean? When we say that the word of God is the inspired word of God, what does that mean? Basically, where it comes from. Okay. Yeah. How else can we say that? It's God breathed. 
right? It's God breathed. These are this is the very word of God. Um, it is the word of God put in writing. All right, uh, who has Second uh, Peter one nineteen through twenty one? Travis. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, very good. So when we're talking about Scripture, we're seeing, we see even in the, the last uh, phrase that Travis read there in Second Peter 1, that um, these were it was written by men, right? But it wasn't just it wasn't just their words out of their own mind, right? No, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were given the words to say and to write by the Holy Spirit. Um, and so we have this very word of God in and considered as scripture, even as Peter very eloquently labeled it as that and described um, how it was written and how he received it. All right. Second Peter two, verse three and 15 and 16. So this is talking about the false prophets, uh, false teachers, right? That Peter was addressing and confronting, also giving the church the defense, uh, the armor, uh, the spiritual weaponry in order to uh, be aware of, to detect, to defend against false teaching. And so we see that this is what really scripture isn't, right? Out of the mouth of these prophets, uh, what was their purpose? It was greed, it was deception, it was harm to Christ and his church, and not to help, right? Um, but notice that they have forsaken the right way. They have gone astray, right? And so we, we find that way. We find uh, the truth declared to us in Holy Scripture. Um, all right, so Matthew chapter 19 Matthew chapter 19. And verses 4 and 5. I'll go ahead and read this. And he answered and said to them. Okay, this is Jesus replying to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had asked the question in the context, right? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Right. 
So he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, and so... We see even in Christ's answer and rebuke to the Pharisees, what does he rebuke them with? He rebukes them with Scripture. What they should have known, right? Even in the Old Testament Scriptures, what they should have known regarding uh, how God created uh, male and female and even in the first and original marriage. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. But the point here is, is those first statements, right? Those first four words. Have you not read? Right? Have you not read and therefore do you not understand these things? You should understand them from the very word of God. All right, very good. Um, So we also see in question three in the larger catechism that scripture is the rule for faith and obedience. And that's really on your handout what I'm getting at in the purpose and use of Scripture, right? That is its purpose and use. It's to be a guide. It's to be a correction. Um, It's to be, uh, even as uh, Paul told Timothy, right? Um, It's to be a a teacher for us, to teach us in the ways of righteousness. Um, And so... We see in this particular point, in this particular clause in the answer to to question three, that as Scripture is the rule of faith and obedience, this is really the doctrine of sola scriptura. right? It's really the the doctrine of sola scriptura, the sufficiency of Scripture, the authority of Scripture in the church and for the church and in the life of the believer. Okay? Let's look at a few uh, passages together before we move into question four. And uh, let's look at Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. Somebody can grab that and read that. Cameron, can you look up Ephesians 2.20? Can you look that up, Ephesians 2.20? Go ahead. You shall not add to the words that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Okay, very good. Yeah, so the Lord has given us his word. He has preserved his word throughout the centuries, too, by the way. Um, and in the giving of his word to us, we therefore, and no one can or should, um, either add to it or take away from it. Okay. And I'm going to hold on, Cam, on Ephesians 2.20. Going along with that, in Revelation 22, right? In, in John's closing, and we find this at the very end of Scripture, right? Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19, right? For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book, And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, 
God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. So we see the the grave importance um, of the sufficiency of Scripture and that nothing, absolutely nothing, man can add nothing to it or take away from it, for it is the Word of God, and it is exactly uh, the Word that must be preserved and proclaimed as it has been given to us. All right, Cameron. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Okay, keep going. In whom the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Very good. Yeah, so we are, the church is established, right, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, on Christ as the chief cornerstone, right? And we see um, the importance and, and purpose then and use of Scripture in how this word, right, is not only uh, true in and of itself what it is and what it isn't, but also then how it must be used and how it should be used in our lives, Okay. All right, so let's move on and look at question four in the larger catechism. Question four. How doth it appear that the Scriptures are the Word of God? And the answer, the Scriptures manifest themselves to be the Word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, by their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But the Spirit of God, bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man, is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very Word of God. And so really, this is a, a wonderful, it's a beautiful collage. It's a, it's a wonderful uh, reality that the Lord has established and ordained in the cohesion, in the beauty, in the purity, in the efficacy, in the work of the Scriptures by the Spirit of God. Right? And so let's look at these um, uniquely and individually here for a moment. And these different pieces right, show us the internal evidence that Scripture is God's Word. Let's look at the majesty of the scripture. Look at Hosea 8.11. Hosea Actually, that should be 8.12. Sorry for the typo. 8.12. But we can begin at verse 11. Because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have become for him altars for sinning. I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. Right, so we see the, the majesty of the Word 
in that God even describes His Word and His law as containing great things. Marvelous things in His Word. And things that Ephraim should have followed, right? And also found great value in. But what were they considered? They were considered strange. Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Let's look at verse 140. This also speaks to um, actually let's look at verse 18. I'm sorry, 18. We'll, We'll look at 140 in a minute. And the context of 17, so Psalm 119, verse 17, Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may see wondrous things from your law. Right? In the word and the law of God, there are contained wondrous things. So there is this great majesty of the scripture. Yes, Travis. Uh, so is this question kind of getting uh, to the self-authenticating nature of scripture? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and in that self-authenticating nature, um, part of that is showing its majesty, right, and the purity and in the cohesion of it all together. All right, and so, but also then in the purity, let's go back to 140 in Psalm 119. Right? Your word is very pure, and therefore your servant loves it. Which is, you know, as we consider the majesty of the word, it should be awe-invoking, awe-inspiring, right? Because there are great things, there are wondrous things in God's word. There, there are things in which um, we see the great holiness of God if we, if we talk about the majesty of it being in the kind of in the greatness um, in the beauty of it in terms of showing God himself and his ways, his law, his words, his commands as being majestic and holy, high and regal, um, kind of kingly, right? Um, there is that aspect of it. Uh, but there are also, um, there, there's also another awe-inspiring uh, piece to this in its purity, right? And, and we as, why, and why in many ways does it strike us um, and cause us by the Spirit's work to love it and to love God all the more for for the purity that it communicates and teaches and proclaims. In part, it's because of the Spirit's work, of course, first and foremost in us, to see those things and to see the Lord um, and the purity that is free from uh, defilement and sin of any kind, of any type of corruption, right? But it's also contra. It's contra to us as sinners. Right, it is something that where we are defiled, we see that which is pristine and pure in God's word. We see the purity of God. We see His character in His word, which which either even 
furthers the, the, the fire of love within us as we see our Lord and as we see um, even that which he is uh, conforming us to um, as he is sanctifying us and he is getting all the crud and the sin out of our lives as he is as he is restoring and, and encouraging us to pursue and also to live according to that which is pure, which is in accordance with his word, right? That is also an awe-inspiring thing that his word would uh, would contain that, would promote that. Um, and uh, so that is another beautiful piece of it. But we also see that it's scripture and can find that it's scripture in that the parts of scripture, they all... Uh, agree with each other. So we see the consent of the parts. If you look at Luke 24, Luke 24, we can begin at verse Twenty-five, really the the point verses, verse twenty-seven. But then he said to them, "O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself." Right, so Jesus, even himself, he he takes his disciples and he says, "I'm going to show you all the way back from the beginning how this was all pointing to me." Right, and went piece by piece through the scriptures, through the Old Testament scriptures, to show them, to show them the things that um, that we see and that we're learning and that we're studying and that we're seeing more and more of. Right, to show them the things concerning himself and how. Uh, all of it was pointing to him. And so we see the consent of the parts and Christ's use of the Holy Scriptures, um, even for the instruction of his own people. But we see the scope of the whole as well, right? We, we see that in Romans chapter 16. Paul speaks to that. Romans chapter 16, at the very end there, in the benediction, Paul says, beginning in verse 25, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures, made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen and amen. This is a wonderful passage regarding revelation of the truth, revelation of the gospel that, that Paul was faithful to proclaim to Rome and to churches around the world and how this is even being proclaimed in our ears today. Right? 
The, the, the mystery that was secret that is now revealed, right? And by the prophetic scriptures made known to all the nations. It is God's word. And it is God's word who is, that is revealing that truth. That truth of the gospel. That truth about Christ to the nations. According to the commandment of the everlasting God. And if you wonder, where does the, where does the confession? Because the confession says this as well at the end of chapter 1. Right in in the second to last section of chapter one, uh, excuse me, no, at the end, in the middle there, right after we read the the books of the Bible, right? It says what? It is the rule of faith and obedience. This is right from Paul, right? By the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience of the faith, right? For obedience to the faith. So this is the use of Scripture. This is the purpose of Scripture. Um. The Lord reveals himself to us, but he also then tells us how we must live and how we must walk and keep and defend the faith. Right? So we see this scope of the whole. But we also see, uh, let's turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9. Anybody got that? Want to read it? I'll read it. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Very good. So we see that the that the word of God it proclaims truth, right? But the Lord also uses it to bring about change in people's lives, right? The Spirit of God is at work in and through the Word and people's hearts to bring about change in our lives, to convince, right? To convert, to comfort, to edify, to build up, right? To convict. And so we see um, this wonderful word, the wonderful law and testimony of our God, um, not only proclaiming and stating what, is, what truth is and what it isn't, but also being living and active, right, in our hearts. And we see that specifically, the writer to the Hebrews speaks to that, right, in that well-known passage that we know in Hebrews chapter 4. Right? Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Right? For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So we see this word of God, it cuts, it divides, it pierces. It brings light into dark places in the hearts of men. 
Right? It exposes. Right? It discerns the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It tells us which way is up. It tells us right and wrong. It tells us what is good and what isn't. What we need to continue to pursue, what we need to continue to strive for, what we need to continue to build, and what we need to get out. What we need to abandon. What we need to forsake. And notice, even as this Word of God, this living Word of God, is powerful and does these things, notice the result. There is no creature hidden from His sight, but all are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. So we see this work of the Word, but we also then see what is true um, in the presence of the Holy God. The presence of the Holy God who sees all, who knows all, uh, before whom and to whom we are naked. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing, and there is no way that we could be in His presence or that we could come before Him, even before Christ, on the judgment day, and have something that we could conceal. That we could successfully hide from his sight. No. He sees all. Right? All the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. That's what they tried to do. Right? When they fell in sin, what did they try to do? They tried to hide. They tried to conceal themselves from God in his sight. But no one can. And we need to remember that. We need to, we need to um, praise the Lord for His work in His Word, His exposing and revealing work in His Word, because although it's often uncomfortable, it's exactly what we need. And it is good that He has purposed it to do so. And so we see these things. We see this powerful Word that agrees and all the parts agree there's no contradictions we see it, the majestic the pure word we we see this this word that is very uh, broad and it, and it and it covers everything that the lord intends it to cover the whole scope of his word including gospel revelation of god and our duties to him and our duties to our fellow man it, it covers everything that he intends for it to cover and we see this to be true though it be written in 66 books. Written by authors over 1,500 years in time in the scope of their writings. Right? Many authors, but yet it all agrees. And why is that? Because it is inspired, it is truly written by God Himself. It is the inspired Word of God. Written by the Holy Spirit and... If these are internal evidences, and I'll close with this, if these are internal evidences that show that the Scriptures are God's Word, there is an external evidence. Now, there are several external evidences right, that, that show us God's Word. I mean, we could look at archaeology, for example. right? We could look at archaeology and say, yes, we see the findings in archaeology. What do they do? Time and time again, they prove that there are artifacts, there are different things that the archaeologists find, and they all show evidence and proof to the exact truth in what God said happened in His Word. But there is one that is even more important, and most important especially, 
Because the Word of God is handed out and has been handed out across the centuries into many hands. And into many hands, they may have read it and said, hmm, that's interesting. But not much else, right? They're still following another script. They're still following their own wisdom and their own desires. And they do not see the Scriptures to be the Word of God. So how is, how is that even externally, so to speak, you know, outside the pages of Scripture? How do we know that God's Word is the Word? Because of the witness and the persuasion of the Spirit in our hearts. Right? The testimony of the Spirit in our hearts. And so we see that that is a wonderful work of the Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, does many wonderful things in applying the benefits of our union of Christ with Christ to us, in sanctifying us, in being our inheritance, our, our the, the guarantee of our inheritance, rather, uh, in, in in sealing us in the, for the day of redemption, and doing all of these wonderful things that the Scriptures teach us He does. But most marvelously, in many ways, He convinces us and persuades us that the Bible is Scripture, that the Bible is God's Word. Look at John 16. John 16, verse 13. We can back up to 12. This is Christ speaking of the work of the Spirit. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, what will He do? He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of what is Mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit points us to Christ. The Holy Spirit shows us Jesus. The Holy Spirit shows us the very things that God has revealed, even the things that Christ has said himself in the Gospels and in all other words of Scripture that they are God's words to us. He persuades us of that. We have peace about that. A few chapters over in John 20, verse 31. And by the way, remember and notice in John 16 there what he says, the Spirit will lead you into all truth. Right? He teaches us the truth. He leads us in the truth. And all the while, He's showing us Christ and His example and working in our hearts that we would follow hard after Him. John 20, verse 31. And actually, we'll start at 30. John says, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that believing you may have life in his name. Again, the Pharisees were told time and again, repent and believe the gospel. They were called whitewashed tombs. They were called broods of vipers. They were insulted. They were challenged. Right? They were called to repentance and believing in the gospel of Christ. And they did not see. They would not hear. Because their ears were not opened by the Spirit of God, nor were their eyes. But yet John says, and it has to be the Spirit's work. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. It is the Spirit's work in convincing us and persuading us that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. It is the Spirit's work, wonderfully, that in giving us faith, in calling us and giving us repentance, and in believing, we do and we indeed have life in Christ's name. The Holy Spirit is claimed to do many things in this world that some of which, depending on what you're talking about, He doesn't do. Um, But there are many things that the Spirit does, and specifically in and through His Word here, that is wonderful to see as He persuades us of the truth and as He persuades us of Christ. Praise the Lord. Any questions that you all have here before we close? But I hope you see and I hope you take joy in really the, the wonder of the internal evidence, right? The wonder of the historic evidence and the wonder of the internal evidence and the external evidence of how God's Word wonderfully fits together, proclaims one single message, and the Spirit's work in it all. Well, let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for this time and we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Spirit's work in and through Your Word. We thank You for Your truth. That is pure truth. It's wonderful truth. We see wonderful things in Your law, the great things of Your law, and we praise You for it. O Lord, we pray that Your Spirit would cause us to be faithful, to keep Your Word, to study Your Word, to feed upon it, to see more of Jesus, and to walk faithfully before You. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.